Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. Well, thanks for joining me again on the podcast. Once again, my apologies for not having an episode last week. I was traveling in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I was with six other pastors, and we were making plans for the 2020 National Conference of the Conservative Grace Brethren. So we had an opportunity to stay at the hotel, meet with the hotel staff, put together some plans and ideas for what we wanted to see happen in our conference. A couple things I'm really excited for. Number one, on Saturday night, we are having a graduation party. I shouldn't say a graduation party, a graduation ceremony. That's probably a better way to put it. There'll be a party after the ceremony. We have three men who are uh, graduating from our practoriums, and they have put in a lot of hard work and effort, and so we're going to have a standalone ceremony for them on Saturday night. The other thing that I'm excited for is um, we are changing up our schedule a little bit, and instead of having our mission nights in the evenings, we are going to look to promote those in the mornings on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday morning. So that will be a, a big change, and I think a welcome change, because, you know, when you start a program at 7 o'clock at night, 8 o'clock at night, people are tired. It's hard to pay attention, and so this will feature our missionaries a little bit more, and that's really one of the primary reasons that we've gathered together as the Conservative Grace Brethren Churches International, is to coordinate and work on missions together. All right. Well, that's a little bit of an update about where I've been and what I've been doing. Back to the topic at hand, we want to look today at how the Bible describes worship. How does the Bible describe worship? I bet that if you were to type in what is worship into a Google search bar or DuckDuckGo or whatever search engine that you use, Yahoo, whatever, you're going to get a lot of, I think, man-centric answers. We call that anthropocentric, like man, anthropology, the study of man, Man man-centric answers for what worship is. And certainly, certainly, there are a lot of ways that man has um, communicated worship, enhanced worship, has studied worship. You know, man has done a lot of wonderful things to increase our worship or to help it be more powerful or meaningful. But a lot of what man does in relationship to worship is focused primarily on the emotions. It's focused primarily on the emotions, and it doesn't always seek to make a strong connection between the emotions and the truth. We ended last week talking about what Jesus said Those who worship God, the Father, must worship in spirit and in truth. So you have a spirit part of your being, and there is an objective, absolute truth. Those two things must be together if you're going to have a true and genuine worship of our great God. Now, we also discussed in our last episode about the fact that every single person is a worshiper. And because every person is a worshiper, everybody creates this liturgy, this form 
That's what a liturgy is. It is a form. This form of worship that pleases the God that you have made in your heart. All right, this is how false worship, this is how idolatry happens. We make a liturgy, a form, a ritual that pleases the God that is in our heart. And then we subject ourselves to that. This happens rather unconsciously. But if you were to talk to somebody and they were to be honest about the elements of their worship, if they were to be honest about how they spend their time worshiping, you would see that this is indeed the facts, that people develop a liturgy in their heart and they are mastered by that liturgy. They follow that liturgy very well. They are devoted to that liturgy. Bob Coughlin, who is a worship leader and thinker, somebody who has a lot of musical experience, but in you know the recent years, maybe 15, last 15 to 20 years, has really done a lot of rethinking about what, ta- what it takes to be a good worship leader or a, a qualified worship leader. Let me put it that way. A qualified worship leader, biblically. He has a, a blog, and it's called worshipmatters.com. He has a book by the same title, Worship Matters, and it is aimed directly at those who are worship leaders in their local churches. One of the things that he points out in his blog, and this is kind of like the worship quote of the week, is this. We want to be mastered by the objects of our worship. What does that mean? We want to be mastered by the objects of our worship. And he says, indeed we are. We worship whatever rules our time, our energy, our thoughts, our longings, and choices. Those who make them idols become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Psalm 115, verse 8. You see, we recognize the same thing. We've studied the same word, the word of God, and we recognize the same thing, that people become dominated by the God that they worship, and they will do all kinds of things, all kinds of actions. They will use all kinds of resources to properly worship the God that they have invented in their own heart or mind. And so God, obviously, is not unaware of this fact. God, as the designer of human beings, as the one who made us in his image, gave us this peculiar capacity. It's a capacity that no animal has. No animal or fish or bird or any other created thing has the capacity to objectively worship like human beings. And that's why, you know, whether you're doing an archaeological dig in Israel or whether you're doing an archaeological dig in Mexico or Russia or Alaska or anywhere that you find human beings, you always find elements and objects of their worship. And as we discussed last week, every single person is a worshiper. So with that as a framework, with that as a foundation, and knowing that God is the one who brought about our existence, and he brought about the processes in our own hearts and minds, in our spirit and our minds, that result in worship. Don't you think we ought to seek, then, 
to understand what God has to say about worship and how it is conducted? I mean, that is the logical conclusion that one must come up with. And I don't think it's right to just say, well, you know, we are worshipers automatically, so that means we just, we can figure it out however we want to, as long as Jesus is the object of our worship. I don't think that's a right perspective. I think there's great latitude in worship to express yourself in a variety of ways. But I don't think that you can take um, a person and divorce them from the biblical terminology that describes worship and then say, well, we're going to worship however we see fit. No, because worship really is ascribing worth to somebody. Worship is acknowledging that somebody else is greater than you are, and you must be under them. You must obey them. And the terminology leads us to this conclusion. And so I I just want to walk through some of the biblical terminology that's used to describe worship. Now, we're not going to just do a total word study, but I, I want to point out these words to you so that you understand that God has spoken regarding the proper attitude and the proper actions that would result in worship, true worship of him. So my Hebrew is a little bit rough, so don't knock me too much on my pronunciation of these words. I did study Hebrew, and um, I I did okay in it. I did much better in Greek, so I'm going to try my best here with these Hebrew word pronunciations. In the Old Testament, there is a Hebrew word, hoa. Okay, and this word means to prostrate oneself or to bow down. So it is a word that indicates position, all right? The best example of this is when you, if you can imagine a monarch, a king sitting on a throne, and you have to walk into the king's courtroom. And the first thing that you do when you walk up to the king's throne is you bow down before him, you prostrate yourself, you bow down it shows that you're taking a humble and a lowly position. You recognize that the king who's on that throne is greater than you are, and you are a submissive servant to that king. Now, this is not the word that indicates action. We're going to get to that next. This is a word that indicates position. We find it early on in the book of Genesis, in the story of Abraham going to sacrifice Isaac. And he gets Isaac and some supplies and some young men who are servants, and they go on a three days journey to a certain place that God told him to go. So they're traveling along. All right, they're traveling along. So they're taking action by going to this particular location. And in Genesis 22, 5, Abraham says to his servants, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Now, what's interesting about this is you have two different words that indicate coming and going, right? We're going to go over there by walking, and then we're going to worship, bow down, prostrate yourself, indicate humility. Why why does Abraham say it like that? Why couldn't he just worship where he was? Well, 
if you're going to be humble, you're going to do exactly what the master says. And so God said, worship exactly on this mountain in this spot. And so it wouldn't have worked for Abraham to just leave his stuff right there and worship right there. It wouldn't have worked for Abraham to worship in the way that God prescribed according to God's command. It wouldn't have worked for him to do that at his tent with his wife there and all their uh, other servants and all their other possessions. No, God wanted Abraham to travel to a specific place and then prostrate himself because it showed and demonstrates humility that you're willing to do that. So the action is we're walking over here. We're going to worship, bow down, prostrate yourself. Then we're going to get up and we're going to come back. So this word, hawa, indicates position. Another word in the Hebrew Old Testament indicates action. Okay, so not only do you have a humility of mind and attitude when you approach Yahweh, but you are to have a submissive attitude that results in action, to serve or to work. This word is Chabad, Chabad. You are going to serve, you are going to work. And now you can express this word. This word is expressed towards people. It's towards things or to God. And when you in the Old Testament, look at the uses of this word expressed towards God. It is not something that is mundane or tiresome, but it is rather a joyful and liberating work experience. And this word is often contrasted in the Old Testament with serving Yahweh and obeying his commandments versus serving false gods. Serving Yahweh and obeying his commandments or serving false gods. And I think a great example, it's actually a counterexample because it's um, in relationship to the god Baal, but it's an excellent example of service, all right? You're going to do this work for this god. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 21. Well, we begin in verse 21. So 2 Kings 10, 21. Jehu, a Reformation king, sought to destroy Baal worshipers, all right? Now, in chapter 10, verse 20, Jehu says, we're going to sanctify or we're going to set apart a solemn assembly for Baal, and it was proclaimed throughout the kingdom. And Jehu said uh, a message all throughout Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. And when they went into the house of Baal, the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. So Jehu decides, you know what? We're going to do away with these people, but we need to find out who all of them are. So send a message throughout all Israel that any worshipers of Baal come and worship. That's interesting. Same concept that happened in the previous verse that we looked at, or the previous example with Abraham. Abraham had to leave a location and go to another location to prostrate himself, to humble himself. These Baal worshipers are doing the same thing. They're going to leave a certain location, come to another location. They're going to prostrate themselves, but they're also going to do something else. They're going to do a special service or a special work. Here it is. He said to one who was in charge of the wardrobe, bring out garments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out garments for them. And Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, 
and said to the worshipers of Baal, Search and see that there is here with you none of the servants of the Lord, but only the worshipers of Baal. Okay, that word worshipers is actually this Hebrew word that means servants. The servants of Baal. The ones who work for Baal. Now, the text then goes on to say, Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. What was the work that they did? The offering of sacrifices and burnt offerings. That was the work that these people joyously did for Baal. You may say, well, that's no different than the work that the priests did in Israel. Well, that's true. Because service is worship. The attitude of service is worship. And when we, when we bring this forward to the church, which we'll look at in a few minutes, but I'll just point this out right now. When you bring this concept forward, the service that you do for God is an act of worship. And so how should that service be done? Joyously. It's a joyful and liberating experience. These people here, they were serving a false God, but they were excited to serve that false God. They were looking forward to serving that false God. They wanted to do that. Now, Jehu was a righteous man, and he had stationed 80 men outside, and he said, the one who permits any of the men whom I bring into your hands to escape shall give up his life for, in exchange. And here's how they treated false worshipers. Then it came about, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering that Jehu said to the guard and the royal officers, go in and kill them and let none of them come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword. You may say, well, that's terrible. You killed these people for worshiping their God. Why? Well, because that was the consequence for false worship in the nation of Israel. Well, we don't do that today. Well, no, we don't do that today. We are not national Israel. But God will hold all men accountable for the gods that they have worshipped. The one true God will make sure that every individual who has rejected him and worshipped a God of their own design will be held accountable. This was done as an example. And fear should have come upon the entire nation of Israel that they repent of their wickedness and turn back to the God who delivered them from the Egyptians, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now let's take a look in the New Testament at what words are described there. We have the same concept going on. There is a word that indicates position, proskuneo. Proskuneo. It is an act of homage or reference. It is translated sometimes as to bow down. And when it is describing worship, it references the internal attitude that bows before one who is greater than oneself. Here's a good example from Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. Matthew 2, 11. This is the story of the Magi, the wise men who came to visit the baby Jesus. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Now, wait a second. These were wealthy aristocrats, if not kings, from a far eastern country. They were used to people bowing down and paying homage to them. And here they are going into this house with Mary and a little baby, 
And they are the ones who are falling down on the ground and worshiping him, giving him honor and reverence. You don't do that for just any baby, but you do it when that baby is the son of God, when that baby is God himself. So this word proskuneo indicates, again, that internal attitude of submission, that internal attitude of humility where you're going to revere somebody who is higher than you. The second word, letruo and letria. Okay, so these are, uh, there's a verb form here and then a noun form. Letruo is to work for hire. That's the basic definition of it. But in context where it indicates worship, the idea is, again, serve. It is, it is a service that is rendered unto God because you want to please God. You have a heart attitude of reverence and respect. When you look at these words together, all right, these two Old Testament words, these three New Testament words, we have a complete picture of what worship actually is. And it is both a heart attitude, so it is an attitude that is cultivated within a person. That's the spirit aspect, okay? And it is accompanied by an obedient action. That would be defined by truth. So when Jesus says worship in spirit and truth, the spirit is the heart attitude and the truth is that which God has revealed to us. So if Christians are going to be true worshipers of God, it takes place both in the heart and it is guided by the word of God. Now, once again, there's a lot of latitude in how this can be expressed. There's a lot of flexibility in the New Testament for different cultures to express worship in different ways. However, you cannot divorce the expression of worship from this definition. Worship begins with a heart attitude, and it is accompanied by an obedient action. And when you look at false worship, the worship of false gods, the attitude is cultivated in the heart. You know, they have a desire to worship a God of their own making, a God of their own design. And the action is cultivated or written down or established through whatever writings that they write about their religion. The action is agreed upon by some type of council of men or women. And, and these this council of men or women agree upon, here's what we must do to serve this God that we believe in with our hearts. Now, there may be more than one man. There may be one man or one woman. You know, in our culture, think about how this plays out. What do we worship in our culture? What is our heart attitude? We used to be a Judeo-Christian culture. And we used to encourage people to worship the one true God. I'm not sure what people are encouraged to worship today other than self. You know, over the last 
six or seven years, there's been one theme that has been continually repeated throughout the media, in advertising, in music, in pop culture, in movies. The theme is basically this. You only live one life, so do what pleases yourself. The hard attitude then that we generally cultivate in America is do whatever makes you feel the best. It doesn't matter how it affects other people and don't let other people judge you for what you do. That's the hard attitude. We are servants of our own pleasures. And the truth that we has established, we have established is summarized in like pithy little sayings like YOLO, you only live once or you do you. Yeah, you do you, man. Whatever, whatever makes you happy, you do you. And I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to tell you you can't do that. So we have the hard attitude of serving yourself and the one objective truth that we all agree on in America. You do you. That's where we're at in terms of worship in our country today. And so we are a far, far, far distance away from how the Bible defines the true God and how the Bible looks at doing true worship. When, when we talk about worship with somebody who's not even a believer, there is a lot of information. There's a lot of gap that needs to be filled in. The culture has taken uh, the the biblical definition of worship, right? We have this definition where it's a heart attitude accompanied with some type of action. They do that, but they're so far removed from any biblical objective truth that we need to redefine what worship is all about. That worship isn't worship of self. Worship is worship of a being greater than you are. Worship is the service to somebody who you will give account to someday. Worship is not a introspective, feel-good idea. Worship is something that flows out of a genuine heart of love, obedience, submission, and it should result in blessing other people. So let me define biblical worship for you in this way. True and genuine worship, according to the Word of God, is an attitude of the heart and mind that is expressed through physical actions. True biblical worship is primarily concerned with giving the proper honor, respect, glory, and praise that is due to the one true God. And we do it with our thoughts, our voices, and our actions. Let me say that again. True biblical worship is an attitude of the heart and mind that is expressed through physical actions. It's primarily concerned with giving the proper honor, respect, glory, and praise due to the one true God through our thoughts, voice, and actions. As I brought to our attention earlier, we are all worshipers every one of us. But who do we worship and how do we worship? This definition 
is biblical. It's according to the Word of God. And we need to seek to practice it in our own life, and we're going to talk about that in some future episodes. We need to seek to practice it, but we also must seek to communicate it to those who have no knowledge of the truth. And that's really, that's really a issue of apologetics. How do we communicate truth to those who don't see it? We need to be praying for one another, encouraging one another, challenging one another to really parse out these details from the Word of God and then think through how we're implementing them in our own personal life and in our churches. This information is not just academic. This information must result in some type of change. And if you think you're going to generate great worship with great music and lights and a fog machine and you know a, a big band and everything, you're not generating... Uh, you may or may not be generating what you think you're generating. You are definitely generating an emotional experience. You may not be connecting with the heart. I look at people at rock concerts and I know that they're worshiping. They're worshiping the band. They're worshiping the music. Um, they're worshiping. I don't, I know that people at churches sometimes are worshiping the band worshiping the music. But is that music making them worship God? Or is that music a substitute for the true God? You know, that was really the criticism that God levied against Israel in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Malachi, and other places in the Old Testament. Look, you're doing all these sacrifices. You're doing everything I told you to do, but your heart is far from me. How, how would God evaluate many of our churches today? Would he look at us and say, you know what? Yeah, you're singing this song. Oh yeah, you've got this wonderful band. You've got all this great music. You've got all the, um, the best things that America has to offer, that the world has to offer in terms of worship, but your heart is far from me. Worship must engage the spirit and worship must be based upon truth. And then worship must be practiced in the daily living of our lives. Well, we'll say a little bit more about this next week. Thank you for your time and attention. And I pray that you've been challenged and that you will work hard to take this truth from God's word and consider how you can practice it in a way that is pleasing to him. God bless. If you'd like to check out more of our ministries, you can find us on the web at www.gbchapel.org. There's a link on there that you can send me an email. If you have any questions or comments, I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much. Have a wonderful day.